Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Aris, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, and by the grace of God and only, I'm here today sober. Uh, it's a great honor to be up here and be able to tell my story and give back what was freely given to me, because this program comes for free. And uh, I'll explain later why does, is this so important for me. Uh, I was born in Greece, and uh, the name of the city I was born is called Thessaloniki. It sounds pretty weird, but uh, you're familiar with it, I'm pretty sure. Most of you heard in the Bible... Uh, St. Paul wrote one of his letters to the Thessalonians. Well, that's exactly where I was born. Uh, I have an older brother. My parents are still alive. They have never been divorced or anything. And uh, I grew up in a very loving and caring environment. There was no incident of alcoholism in my entire family or extended family, which uh, made me feel very, very weird growing up and having problems with alcohol and drugs. It reinforced my guilt, a lot of it. Before I continue, I want to say a couple of things about uh, my upbringing, because it's completely different than uh, what you guys have experienced here. Uh, one main difference regarding alcohol is it's way much more acceptable. I mean, it's not a big deal. The drinking age, of course, is 18, but nobody pays attention. It's tolerated, very, very tolerated. I remember as growing up as a kid, Eight, ten years old, I had people asking me, go buy me cigarettes, go buy me alcohol, go buy me a beer. And of course, I would go to the grocery store, buy a beer, and keep the change. That's why, that's, that was the incentive for me. So there is no ID or anything. Nobody, nobody asked, nobody even gonna think that a ten year old is gonna buy beer to drink it himself. Everybody knows that, alright, you, you're doing a chore. Some type of chore. That's one main difference. That doesn't happen here. I mean, while I came here and I, I was still smoking, I went at 3 o'clock in the morning at a Kroger, and I wanted to buy cigarettes. And uh, the lady said, well, you have to have an ID. I said, why, do I look underage? No, you don't, but you still have to have an ID. So you've got to be kidding me. You're going to leave me without cigarettes because I don't have an ID, 3 o'clock in the morning. Where is your manager? I want to see your manager. I mean, it sounds like crazy. For me, it's absurd. Doesn't, I, can, I cannot comprehend it. Anyhow, another thing that is very, very different is religion. I mean, uh, religion is part of the culture. Uh, we, uh, we have many, many religious holidays, which are official state holidays, country holidays. So uh, it's a very big part of our upbringing, too. We're not as much as religious as going to church every Sunday or doing all these things, but uh, I can't really explain it. I mean, it's in, an everyday, in our everyday life. It's left and right. It's everywhere. Another main uh, difference is a uh, difference. Another thing that is different is uh, we Greeks are uh, very proud people of our ancestors. Although I have to admit that modern Greeks have nothing to do with those old folks. Nothing. Absolutely nothing at all. But uh, <laughs> our ancestors invented drama. They were invented drama. And every Greek loves drama. They love it. And they have to keep creating drama. That's part of what motivates them to go on. And of course, as a Greek myself, I have my own drama. And uh, coming to this program and coming to this country, I was confronted with all these things that I 
I consider normal growing up, and uh, I stopped creating more drama than it's necessary. And uh, guess what happened? I don't have as many problems as I used to have anymore, which is pretty amazing. But uh, let me go back and tell you what happened. Uh, I grew up, like I said, in a very loving and caring family. There was no incident of alcoholism. Uh, I was a good student growing up. I started practicing a lot of sports as a kid. Uh, as a, around 15 or 16 years old, I started playing basketball and uh, I had a lot of coaches. Uh, my coach approached my family telling them that I was uh, a talent and that this would encourage me to continue to practice. And so I, I practice sports, I can say alcoholically. I mean, every day for six, seven hours. Every day. That's all I did. School and sports. And uh, after a couple of years, I was honored to play for, uh, represent my country with wearing the, the uniform of uh, my country in a couple of tournaments, which was a great honor. And uh, like I said, I was, I was very, very focused in doing that with the blessings of my coaches and my parents. Unfortunately, I had a, an injury which caused me to stay out of uh, any uh, physical activity for at least six months. And I could never get back into it. I never got back into it. Uh, the fear of getting hurt again was too overwhelming. So that dream was gone, was out of the picture. For uh, a short period of time, I was devastated. And uh, this is when uh, drugs and alcohol start kicking in. I, by that time, I was 18 years old. And after that time, I never smoked. I never drank. I drank maybe a beer here and there, but that wasn't my thing. I mean, my mind was elsewhere. So I didn't care about all of these things. Of course, when I stopped, like I said, drugs and alcohol kicked in. I started hanging out with my friends and I started drinking. Very, very soon, my drinking escalated. Very, very soon. In a couple of, uh, probably in a year or in a year and a half, I was drinking on a daily basis and a lot of drinks. With the blessings of everybody. Because it's not a big thing. My family knew that I was drinking. That's okay. It's still to this day, I still believe that um, a lot of people there drink a lot of alcohol. They're alcoholics, but that's okay, because it's considered to be normal. Uh, at the time, I went to college, and uh, I did that not exactly because I wanted to, but because I wanted to have my parents get off my back. I just wanted to, uh, I found this way of life with drinking and drugging, and I, I liked it. I loved it, and I wanted to do it more and more and more. And the only way I could do it and get away with things was go to college, all right? I'm a student, I'm studying, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. What, do you, what else do you want from me? And I did it. Now, how did I earn a degree? I have no clue. <laughs> I really have no clue. I mean, still to this day, I'm amazed how I did it. It was uh, lots of things I don't remember. And when, if you ask me about what I studied, I studied geology. If you ask me about geology today, probably, I don't know, 75% of the things that I've learned. Because, I don't, like I said, I don't know how I did it. Coming, after, coming out of the college, I started working. And uh, one of the things that uh, uh, a fundamental obligation of every Greek male citizen is to serve his time in the army. And, uh, of course, my brother, as an older brother, is a custom. He went first, and I had to go, I had to follow while he was away, uh, my father started having some problems with his health, some serious problems with his health. So uh, he stepped down from work. So all of a sudden, I was put the head of the family. What a great responsibility. 
I didn't quite take it very, very well in the beginning. I mean, having all this control and all the finances all of a sudden and having all this money in my pocket and nobody to be accountable to, that didn't go very well. Very, very soon, very, very soon after that happened, like two or three months, I got busted. I got arrested out in the street for drugs. But uh, everybody, of course, was devastated. Lots of denial in my family. It never happened. I got out of it, of course. And I'm saying, of course, because uh, that has been the pattern in my whole life. I do things. They come and bail me out. So it was something like nothing happened. I got out of it like brand new. I made my promise. I said, I'm not going to do it again. And guess what happened? I went back to work. The same exactly thing. I still had all the finances under my control because nobody else was there. Uh, somehow, I managed for uh, until my brother comes back to sort of not fuck it up completely. I was fucking it up a little bit. Just a little bit. Just enough, just enough to create, a, not to create any more problems. I had some sense of what I was doing, sort of. So the time comes, and I'm leaving. I'm going to the army. And uh, I was pretty scared. And uh, it's, a, it's for a year and a half, and I wouldn't dare go there uh, with anything. I cleaned myself, and I said, I'll go and see what's going to happen. But, you know, I went there. I saw what was going on. I got myself acclimated, and uh, pretty soon I started doing the same thing that I knew how to do best, drink and drug. I got all the connections there. I mean, I knew everybody in my camp who's doing what and at what time and where he's buying and everything. Everything. Again, with the help of my family, I managed to get out, not to get in trouble because they were bailing me out. And uh, as I found out later, especially my mom, she was very, very scared of me. Very, very scared of what could have happened. And uh, she was my guardian angel. Of course, the way I perceived it was, okay, I can get away with things, so I'll do whatever the fuck I want. And that's what I did. Coming out, I did that, and uh, still to this day, I don't know how I did it. The past eight months was a hell. So coming out of there, I kept doing the same thing. But uh, like I said, my drinking and drugging escalated to the point that I couldn't even work. I couldn't do anything. And my family started having enough of me, of the whole thing, of what I was into the way of life. My my whole family was very, very disappointed with me. Uh, one of the people that uh, growing up I had as a role model was my father, a, a man with a very strong self-will, succeeded out pure, purely out of his self-will, so that was my role model. And uh, when I was confronted with the things I was doing, I, tr I said, okay, I'll uh, get my act together and I'll start behaving. But I found out that I couldn't. And that was, a, I was, that was devastating for me. Something that I wanted to do, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't control my drinking. It was too overwhelming. I would stay stopped for a week, but then, boom, I went back out again. And um, this is when, uh, at some point when this was going on, my, uh, my father called me one day. He said, you need to do something about it. You got a problem. And uh, we need to take care of it. So she said, just, okay, you'll go to treatment. I said, okay, I'll go to treatment. I thought, that I'll, okay, I'll go there. They'll fix me. Treatment, I thought it was like, uh, all right, you break your hand, you put it in the cast. After a while, everything is fine. Treatment would be something similar. So I went there. I stayed for there for a week. And guess what happened? I left. 
I called them up. I said, well, these people are fucked up. I don't belong here. <laughs> That's not for me. That place is not for me. That, I have nothing in common with these people. They, they bought my idea. They came and picked me up. But guess what happened? I went back very, very soon. Well, this time I completed the program. So what? I get out. My dad sat me down. I said, what's going on? What's happening? I said, well, I had learned everything I had to learn. I know what's going on. There is no way. Don't worry about it. What? I don't need to tell you what happened afterwards. Of course I relapsed. Of course. There was no meetings, no nothing. I just, I learned. I know what's going on. At that point, uh, after I relapsed again, everybody was pretty devastated. Going in two treatments and nothing's happening and not, not even one small change. Uh, I also, because I started hustling in the streets a lot, it became very, very dangerous for me. I got some connections that I shouldn't have done. And um, there are lots of things happening. They were after me. They were actually, they were not after me. They were after the people I was used to buy and they wanted them. But they were after me. I was the easy victim. And uh, for some reason, where my parents used to live down the street was this DA cop. So uh, he knew my parents. So he went to my mom and... Uh, he spoke to her. He said, this is what's going on. He's in big, big trouble. I'm just telling you, so I'm warning you because this is what's going to happen. They're going to pick him up and it's going to be ugly. Having in mind that he was picked up a couple of times more. For some reason, my mom came and told me all of this. I believed her. I usually didn't believe anything that she said. She would say one thing. I said, yeah, yeah, whatever. But for this time, I really did believe her. So I said, okay, I'm willing to. Let, I need to go. I didn't, go, I didn't want to go to jail or, I, there was no way. I need to go. Let me, I'll go out of the country. I'll live. I'll go to treatment anywhere. Okay? Find whatever you can. During that time, I met a couple of people that I knew from my using tub. I knew they were using before, and they took me to an AA meeting. Actually, it was an AA. It was NA. I go there, I'm still high, and, um, I can't remember anything, but I heard it yesterday too. I remember the happy faces. That's all I remember. And I still didn't believe them. I mean, some people said, I have 10 years. Yeah, okay, you didn't smoke, you didn't do this, you didn't, but you haven't even drunk a beer in 10 years? I don't buy that. That's way too much. There is no, there wasn't a concept of me like a sober. What is sober means? Sober means you don't do drugs that fuck you up. Okay, you have, you can drink a beer or something. You can have a glass of wine. That's fine. That's not a bad thing. So, uh, that's all I remember. I went three days in a row. I didn't go three days in a row. They took me three days in a row. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go. So uh, after that, somebody suggested there, gave me some phone numbers, and I left. I went to England. There was this fine treatment center there, and I went there. Again, I went there for the wrong reasons. I didn't want to stay clean and sober. I just wanted to find a way how to continue to do what I was doing and not having consequences. Well, the 90th day, when I, I had an 89 days clean, the 90th day, me and somebody else, we jumped off the, we, we lived in the treatment center. We escaped from the building we were in because we literally had to do that. We, got, we get out, we get wasted. I get back. He's not, he doesn't get back. He's getting arrested somewhere later that night. And uh, part of the treatment center was uh, if you relapse, basic rule, you're out of here. So we're sitting at Heathrow Airport in London, and uh, me and him drinking vodkas and promising to one another that we're going to stay clean. 
And I was, I was thoroughly convinced, being drunk on the plane, that I'm going to stay clean. I mean, there was nobody in the world that could convince me at that time that I'm not going to stay clean. I was pretty sure. Now, of course I relapsed. Of course. I mean, I, I never stayed clean. And this is when, uh, of course, everybody was completely devastated. Very, very disappointed with me. Things got very, very bad back home. Uh, I was completely broke. I wasn't homeless only because of my uh, father's, let me, let me say, grace. He said, you can always have a roof over your head, and you can always have a plate of food here in my house. But that's all. That's about it. Whatever you do is on your own. That didn't go very well with me. I didn't. That, that wasn't what I wanted out of life growing up, to be without a car, without a job, without money in my pocket, without even cigarettes. That's not what I wanted. So I said, I need to do something. I started realizing that something is not going well. I didn't quite put my finger that it was drugs or alcohol, but I <laughs> still, still, I was, I was in the same mode. Drugs and alcohol is fun. I'll continue to do them. And uh, this is when I decided to come over here. Again, from the same meeting that, uh, of course, in, in England, they taught us it was a 12-step treatment. And you go to meetings. So I said, okay, I started going to meetings. And I met this girl. Uh, she was, no, no, it wasn't, a, it wasn't like that. I met this girl, and she was here in the States in some treatment, so I got her phone number from here. And soon after, I came. When I came over... <laughs> here in the States, I mean. <laughs> So I get here, I get here in treatment and, uh, they start confronting me with all the things that I was considering as normal growing up. Like, uh, it took me a long time to realize why my self-will is a bad thing. Why? I said, why not? Why is it? I mean, everybody around me is the same thing because you guys say it's the wrong thing. I don't think so. And I kept arguing. Well, the more I argued, the more they kept me. And I stayed a long time there. <laughs> I stayed a long time. I saw all my, my apartment mates graduating, and I waved at them, but I was still there. <laughs> Pretty crazy. Uh, finally, I graduated. Uh, they wanted me to stay some more in a halfway house and do some volunteer work, just to stay some more time, er, get some clean time under my belt. Uh, that didn't go very well with me. So, well, volunteer work, well, doesn't, I don't like it. I stayed for a couple of months, and then I went back. The real reason, the real reason that, I, that I went back was, uh, I had a relationship that, uh, because of my, my addiction, didn't work out. She, she kicked me to the curb. She couldn't take it anymore. She said, go do it by yourself. And the real reason why I wanted to go back was to get back with her. Now I'm clean. I got my, you know, I'm behaving and everything. I, I clean my act. We'll get back together. That was the real reason. Did I say anything to anybody? I don't think so. I presented everything that, all right, I'm not a citizen here. I can't work. I can't do this. Uh, it costs too much money. I leave. And, of course, nobody could really argue with that. I went back, and uh, I relapsed in a couple of months, right before I got my nine-month chip. And uh, looking back, that was the best thing that happened to me. That relapse really, really was a... A good thing. It taught me a great lesson. One of the things that uh, 
happened at that time was uh, while I was here, I experienced a little bit of sobriety. I experienced a little bit of that feeling of of serenity that I had. I, that uh, is a byproduct of working this program. And I wanted some more of that. I really, really wanted some more of that. So I was very, very willing to come back. Very, very willing. And I did. And uh, I came back October 14th, 99, and since then I have been sober. Uh, it is pretty amazing what has happened since October 14th that I decided to all surrender. Because that's exactly what I did. I went to, uh, to the St. Truman Center, and uh, the first thing that came out of my, the first words that came out of my mouth is, whatever. Whatever you guys want me to do, I'll do it. I tried my own way for, a lo- for many, many years. I drunk and drugged for 10 years, straight 10 years. I don't remember, I don't think I had a sober day. I'm pretty sure I didn't. Because, you know, uh, I thought of clean. I'm clean when I'm not using drugs, and particularly my drug of choice. Drinking was, it was okay. That's, that's not a bad thing. So I'm clean. I can still drink, but I'm clean. That's, that was my idea of clean. So that's why I'm saying I don't think I ever had a day of clean, really, because there was always alcohol around me. So uh, I started, I graduated from there very, very soon. They didn't catch me long, and I went to a halfway house, and uh, I got me a sponsor like it was suggested. Uh, I started going to meetings, but uh, my sponsor at the time didn't have time to work with me. I was pretty early on in recovery, and uh, I found myself sleeping again in all sorts of things. And uh, this is when I realized I had to do something. I mean, this person, I love him to death, but he cannot help me because he's busy or for whatever reason. So this is when I, while I was going to meetings, I, I heard people sharing, and uh, I heard this gentleman who's my sponsor today sharing, and I said, I want what he has. And what he had was a good knowledge of the big book. I said, if this is the program and everybody talks about this big book, I want to find out what is what is in there. I want to. So I asked him to work with me. And uh, I still remember he says, uh, honor and privilege. And so I looked at him, honor and privilege, because I asked him to be my sponsor. I didn't quite get it. What what does that mean? I said, that's okay. If I'll... That's that's what went through my mind. I mean, I couldn't understand why somebody, I'll ask somebody to sponsor me, and it would be, he said, so this person would say it's an honor. Uh, we start working the steps. We went through the big book. And things changed. Things really, really changed. A very, uh, my first uh, really uh, revealing experience of the steps, of, of the process, was the fourth step, the fifth step, not the fourth, the fifth. When I actually told the, what I wrote in the fourth step, it made me realize uh, who I really am and not who I think I am. Because I was basing myself, what I, my perception of myself was based on my intentions. Because I never wanted to hurt anybody. I always loved everybody. But I ended up hurting everybody around me. And especially the people I loved the most, my family. I mean, what I, with the things I did, what they went through with me, it's pretty amazing. So I'd, I've done some serious damage in their lives. And all of that because I wanted to drink and drug. Well, after I've done, after I worked, like I said, uh, it was a pretty revealing experience. Then it was a ninth step, which I'm still working on it because all of my men are back there. So every time I go back there, I make some more, and I make some more, and I make some more. And uh, I went to people that I, I surely hated to go. 
and uh, I owed money or I'd done a lot of things. But it, it is very rewarding experience, claiming that responsibility that this is what I did, and I'm here just to make my amends, to restitute my past. It's very, very rewarding. It helped me grow. It really did. Every time I go back and make my amends and come back, I feel a little older, a little more mature. My life has changed dramatically. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. I quit smoking. I used to be a heavy smoker, three packs a day. And I quit smoking. I exercise. Like the past six months, I started exercising. I pay attention to my diet. I go to school. That's what I did here. I forgot to mention. That's what I did here to, uh, just to be able to stay. I went back to school. I got a degree. And now I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in an MBA program at Georgia State. And I'm trying to uh, get an MBA, too. Uh, I've got a connection with my higher power, with my friend. No matter what's going on, I can always turn to him and say, please take care of that. I just, it's too much for me right now. I cannot handle it. And uh, it always turns out well. Always turns out well. So me, from me being completely hopeless and helpless, to where I am right now, full of hope, serene, no matter what's going on in my life, I'm okay with it. I have this feeling that uh, everything eventually is going to be okay. I trust the process, and I have conditioned myself to do certain things. Go to meetings, call my sponsor, working with others. All of the, the suggestions of the program, I just follow them blindly, no matter what's going through. Either I'm feeling good or I'm feeling bad. Especially when I'm feeling bad, I have found it that it's very, very helpful. It takes me out of myself, and eventually it turns out to be okay. So, so everything is working fine. I have no major complaints. I have luxury problems today. That's what I have. I don't have any major, major issues. Not at all. Things with my family are great. I was telling somebody yesterday, a few years back, I wanted to kill my brother. I was calling my dad and said, tell him, not whoever call me again or speak to me, or I'll, I'll kill him. And today, I spoke to him Thursday, Friday. I start sharing intimate, oh no, started. I share intimate, intimate things with him. And I trust his, uh, whatever he's gonna say. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Never happened with us. With my dad, we were, we were always apart. The same thing. He picks up the phone, which is something that, uh, to call me, which is something out of his, uh, way of doing things. Completely out. So, uh, Things, I've got one minute, so things, <laughs> that, this is what it is, so things are getting better and better, and uh, I'm going to keep coming back, because this thing works, and like a good agent I am, I want more and more. Thank you. My name's Sock, and I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God of my understanding and them 12 steps, I didn't to have to cook my breakfast in a spoon this morning and wash it down with whiskey. You know, and for that I'm eternally grateful. Uh, I'm not going to say much more about drugs past that because I've shot enough dope to fill back with a pickup truck. But out of respect for the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and our traditions, I've been taught to stick with singleness of purpose. Now, when I go to a meeting of Narcotics Anonymous, I introduce myself as a drug addict and I talk about drugs. At a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I try to stick with whiskey because that was uh, that was what it was about for me. 
my home group's uh, Robber's Roost, Vista Men's Group that meets at 6.30 every Thursday night at 1010 East Vista Way in Vista, California to discuss the spiritual applications of these steps and principles to our lives one day at a time. And it's also necessary to report to you that that's the best men's meeting in America. <laughs> no doubt in my mind. Uh, we were smart enough to send uh, one of our members down here to speak two and a half years ago. And uh, God directed him to bring this workshop back to Southern California. And last weekend, uh, we just held our fourth Back to Basics workshop, which is patterned after your workshop, after the rock. And I want to thank Doc Crandall and Mr. Hollinsworth for getting that started because that's a pass-it-on thing that's going on. And uh, some of my home group brothers are here today. And uh, we, we really thank you all for that. That's been a tremendous thing in our lives there to carry this message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I drank my last drink on December 5th, 1987. And uh, three days later... I asked a man to be my sponsor, and that was Kip Collins. And Kip has a sponsor, and his name's Pat T., and Pat has a sponsor, and his name's Harry Homer. And unfortunately, a couple of months ago, we buried Harry's sponsor, who was Sully Sullivan, a highly decorated uh, Marine Corps retired officer. And we're hoping that Harry will get another sponsor. We don't want to see him get drunk. He ain't got 44 years. <laughs> But we've been taught, uh, you know, in, in that line, we've been taught, you know, that sponsorship's a very important thing and also one of the steps, that 12th step. And that's the topic of this meeting, the power of these steps, you know. Uh, when I, was, I came from one of them families, basic Bible family, you know, I was raised in the Church of Christ. Uh, to best of my knowledge, my mother's never had a drink in her life. I never seen my father drunk. I never seen my uncle's drunk. I never seen my grandfather's drunk. I never seen my great grandfather's drunk. Uh, they would have a drink, but it was on a holiday, uh, you know, the Fourth of July or Christmas Eve or something like that, and all the men would go out in the barn, and uh, whosoever barn it was, they'd reach down the oats bin, pull out a jug, and they'd uncork it. They'd go around once, they'd plug it up, and put it back. That's about it. You know, and I have been told when they were younger that they sold sowed their wild oats. You know, they'd go to that Saturday night dance and get a little oiled up and laugh and tell jokes and stuff. But uh, I was never subjected to any of that. Uh, I don't know, not, didn't know nothing about it. But from the time I was a little kid, I just never fit in. Uh, I had five younger brothers and sisters. Uh, I got a hundreds of cousins, I mean a bunch of cousins, and we was all together. But I never fit in with them other little kids, the cousins or the kid next door or nobody. I just didn't just didn't feel right with them other kids. And uh, so I'd go try and hang around with the older kids, you know. And that didn't work out too good, you know. They're always trying to trick you, you know, get you to do this, do that, you know, pushing you around something. And that didn't work out too good, so I'd go and try and hang around with the grown-ups. And, uh, and where I come from, the grown-ups was wanting you to do something. Sit down and be quiet, stand up and sing, play the violin, you know, wash the dishes, some damn thing that I certainly wasn't interested in either. <laughs> so that didn't work out too good. 
you know, but fortunately, when I was very young, I made one real good friend. And this real good friend of mine's name was Johnny. And if I went this way, Johnny went this way. And if I went that way, Johnny went that way. If I come up with a good idea, Johnny was down for it. Never argued, never refused. You know, he never come up with no ideas of his own. That was cool. Man, Johnny got along good. <laughs> Johnny was my shadow. You know, and my mother thought that was pretty strange that I carried on such intensive conversations with Johnny, but uh, it worked for me. You know, and uh, and that's the way it was, and uh, things were good around my house. But uh, the summer that I was 11 years old, my father passed away, and I was real close to him, and, uh, and my world ended that day as I knew it, and I really didn't feel right, but... The way that I was notified that my father had died was uh, one of my step-grandmothers came to me and said, Your dad's dead now. You're the man of the family. And see, I ain't no damned hippie. I'm a well-groomed mountain man. <laughs> where I come from, men are supposed to do what men are supposed to do. You know, and being a man meant that you had some responsibilities, and I already knew that. I just didn't know it was going to happen that quick. And, uh, and I didn't know how to do that. And I sat around trying to figure it out, you know. Man, I don't feel like no man. I don't even fit in with nobody. You know, i got a real problem going on here. Because I know what men are supposed to be, and they're supposed to fit in. And and uh, it, it just ain't working. And we had just moved to town from the ranch right before my dad died. And uh, he'd bought a TV at the hawk shop. If you held on to the wire, you could get a picture on it. And uh, there was these guys on there, Lash LaRue and John Wayne, Audie Murphy and some of these guys, you know. And they're bellying up to the bar for four fingers of whiskey, you know, fighting it out, you know, kissing the girl and riding off on the horse, whatever. And, uh, well, dang, you know, and that looked like men to me. And I'm sitting around there and my dad, uh, the neighbor had given him a pint of Seagram 7 for his birthday in March of 1953. And Dad died in June of 1957. And uh, this was right after that, this period that I'm at. And he kept that bottle of whiskey underneath the tea towels in the bottom drawer in the kitchen. And I knew that. And I was sitting in there with Mom and the kids one day, and her one night, and watching one of them Lash LaRue movies, you know, and the boys rode into town and tied them horses up, went in there and slapped that bar and ordered that four fingers of whiskey and threw it down, got in a fist fight, you know, and then a gun fight and kissed a girl and rode off on a horse, and I'm going, <laughs> I figured it out, that's a problem, I ain't had my whiskey yet, you know, these men are drinking whiskey, you know, Audie Murphy, you know, all them soldier movies, you know, same thing, you know, they leave the farm, you know, they go to boot camp, they go to bar, they get drunk, they get in a fight, they kiss a girl and off to war, you know. That whiskey was always in there, so I'm figuring, you know, that must be part of the deal here. Now, my mom was one of them ones whiskey, lips that touch whiskey will never touch mine, you know. So I know mom ain't going for this deal, so I had to sneak into the kitchen, and I drug this bottle of Seagram's pint bottle of Seagram 7 out, which was half empty. It wasn't half full, it was half empty. There's a difference. Some of you guys may understand that. And I spun the cap off that bottle, and I was 11 years old, and I took a big pull on it. And when it went down, it burned. It was burning going down. It hit my belly, and it got real hot. And my belly got real hot, and it started back up. 
But it didn't start back up like throwing up. It started back up like my whole body got warm. And my neck got hot and it swelled up, you know. And my shoulders got bigger. And my cheeks got real hot. And that whiskey hit the top of my head and it was the very first time in my life I ever felt okay. It was wonderful. It was great. And I'll guarantee you if I could take a big pull of Seagram 7 this morning and get that feeling, I'd do it. Because it done for me what I could not do for myself. It made me feel comfortable. It made me fit in. It made me everything that I needed to be. And I liked it right then. The very first drink I ever had done just as exactly what it was supposed to do. And for me, what happened is what happens for alcoholics. I drank for the effect. It worked real good. And I'm going, that's it. Now I'm a man. Everything's going to be wonderful. And I walked into the back in there and sat down and watched that TV. And in about five minutes, I'd realized that I probably hadn't drank four fingers. <laughs> and I'm right back in that kitchen. You know. My dad was a real good man. He was a veteran of World War II. Uh, he was a cowboy, a farmer, and a good, hard-working man. That took him four years to drink half of that pint of Seagram 7. And I was 11 years old and hadn't been out of Colorado Springs yet, and I got mine down in less than 15 minutes. <laughs> Dad wasn't much of a drinker. He just didn't know how to do it. <laughs> and that set the stage for my drinking career for 30 years, and that's just exactly how it went. All I drank was however much there was, you know. Mostly what I drank was yours, you know. I never quit drinking because I didn't have enough money to drink, you know, as long as they made windows out of glass, you know, and six guns, I can get whiskey. Ain't no problem because you got some. If I ain't got none, you got some. And uh, and I'll get yours. That's just how it started out. I started out drinking somebody else's whiskey, and I ended up drinking somebody else's whiskey. Uh, I drank my way through high school. Uh, out of high school. I didn't graduate. I didn't get one of them diplomas until I came back from Vietnam. And uh, and that thing called Vietnam was coming up then. It was 1965. And, and I went to boot camp, jungle warfare school in Vietnam. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't want to go to college. I didn't want to go to Canada. I didn't want to do none of that shit. I wanted to be Audie Murphy. And please excuse my cursing there. Uh, I've been taught not to do that from the podium. And I apologize. Uh Mom and a flag and apple pie, that's why I was raised. And, uh, and off to Vietnam, and the first thing that happened to me in Vietnam was I met a guy by the name of Frank B. Garcia, and he was ten years older than I was. And he told me he'd teach me how to stay alive in a gunfight, and he did. And he also taught me that, uh, if the United States Army gives you a gun, all the bullets and hand grenades you want, you can get anything else you want. It's real easy. And I liked Vietnam. I got to act just exactly like I thought there, you know. I didn't have any of those, uh, moral or legal problems, and it worked real good for me. And when we were out doing our job, I'd done a real good job. Uh, I was good at what I'd done. We were on recon, search and destroy, and ready reactionary force. And I liked it so well that I stayed there as long as they would let me. And as long as we were in the field doing our job, they liked me. But whenever we came into a secured area, it didn't take but about four months of my being there. And when we was in that secured area, they'd set me on my bunk and put an armed guard on me. That's how it was, you know. I acted like I thought. 
And uh, when my enlistment in the Army was up, they made me come back to the States. And I told them I wanted to re-enlist. And they said, you got to go back to the States. And I said, well, other people re-enlist here. And they said, that's other people. We want you to go back and have a psychiatric <laughs> evaluation. And, uh, and that was my plan. I was coming back to the States, get a psychiatric evaluation, go back to Vietnam. But there was a couple of bars in between, you know. And, uh, and that was it. And I'll try and shorten this drunk log up. Because it took me 30 years to get get my last quart in me. And there was a lot of things that happened in there. I've never had a drink in a county that I didn't see their county jail. I'm an alumni of the Colorado Territorial Prison, cell house 7. I got to make one trip there. I didn't like being locked up. So I learned not to rob them straight people. I learned to rob you. You know, I turned right into Robin Hood. You know, and... uh and the only reason I would be up this time of the morning was to be come over to rob you because you was just going to sleep and you was real groggy, you know, I knew that. Uh, I should just be coming too, you know. I shouldn't be, uh, I shouldn't be standing here sober, you know. It's only by the grace of God that I was able to wake up this morning and get on my knees and not have to fight my way through depression to get on my knees. Because for 14 years of my sobriety I had to do that, but the power in these steps. You know, and I got to find Alcoholics Anonymous somewhere between 1967 and 69. But uh, I wasn't ready for it. And I had brief periods of recovery followed by even worse relapse. But I came here with reservations. I came here court low. You know, I was different than you. I didn't have to do what you'd done. You see, I'm this cowboy kid, started riding motorcycles when I was 13 years old. And I got a whole bunch of that stuff to pin on a uniform, you know. Uh, I could fist fight, I could do all that stuff, and I didn't have to do what you had to do. Them 12 steps, there ain't but 12 of them. They're all one-liners. They don't cover but a page and a half. Any dummy can read them twice and have that down pat, right? That's the way I figured it, and I tried that. But the same thing had happened. I'd have a drink, I'd have that, re- uh, that uh, allergic reaction to that alcohol, and I'd break out in something like handcuffs or another country. Or... <laughs> just, just happened that way. I don't know what happened. It was like my friend. I never attributed it to the booze because they pick on a little white guy up north there, I'll guarantee you. And they used to pick on me a lot. But, uh, see, there was this other thing. Without whiskey in me, uh, I just never felt okay. Nothing worked. And it wasn't until just a few days ago that I figured out this thing, see... Now, I do have to refer to the drugs again. I'd used to shoot heroin. I'd pick up that whiskey bottle just as soon as I fixed, take a big pull on that whiskey. And them junkies, see, I'm a junkie, I'm a drunk. <laughs> They'd look at me and say, what'd you do that for? And I told them, I'm getting high. And it wasn't until just a few days ago that I re- I've been trying to figure out why I'd done that either. You know, I didn't know why I'd done it. And it was just a few days ago that it, God finally revealed to me that the reason that I'd done that is I could do absolutely nothing without alcohol in my body. I couldn't do narcotics without alcohol in my body. <laughs> it absolutely took alcohol for me to live. Booze done for me what I could not do for myself. Alcohol was not my problem, it was my solution. You know, I needed that booze in me. Some people need Wheaties, you know. Some people need Big Macs. I needed that whiskey. It was necessary. I had to have that stuff. But all this drinking, all these things that happened to me, there came a period of time when uh, 
that I, wa- I really wanted to be sober. And I got with this little Irish gal. She said she was four foot eleven. She'd never let you measure. She was ninety four pounds when she was pregnant, and liked to drink whiskey like I like to drink whiskey. And when she was mad, she could dribble a twenty seven inch TV like a basketball. She is something. This little gal was great. And we occasionally would have a domestic problem. I like to drink whiskey like I drank whiskey, and I loved that woman. And there came a time when we'd had one of them breakups and got back together, and we wanted to be together, but we knew we was killing each other, and her story was like mine, brief periods of recovery followed by a worse relapse. And we got back together one time, and we talked about that, and we got to get sober. And we got down on our knees and we asked God for help, and he gave us help. And we started going to some meetings, but we made a little mistake here. Whenever we went to meetings, we went to meetings together. I asked a guy to be my sponsor, and she thought Dick was a good old boy, so she figured Dick was her sponsor, too. If we read the book, we read it together. We did pray a lot, and we only prayed together, you know. If we were at a meeting and Dick was there and wasn't real busy working with one of you guys, we'd say hello to him. And about two years later, Diana had, had, had cancer, and she'd had some lumps removed, but she also had a, a brain aneurysm. They told us at some point in time that it was rupture and they didn't know what the outcome would be, if it would be a minor stroke or if it would be fatal or anything in between. And when that happened, what happened, uh, Diana reached in the glove compartment and took out a pistol that I'd given her because, see, she never wanted to be a vegetable or an imposition on anybody. And she took care of that problem. And I'm the one that found her. And when I found her and that blood was running down her deck, one more time I was completely alone. Because, see, she was really my higher power. We loved God and believed in God, but she was the thing that I depended on. She was the thing that had made things okay for me right then. And I didn't drink. Because, you see, our daughter, our oldest daughter, was pregnant with our first grandchild. And I had to take care of that funeral. And our youngest daughter was 14 years old and she was devastated, you know. And there were just a lot of things that I had to do. Now, I can rise to them big deals. I, I can deal with them big deals. And we got through that funeral and the birth of my granddaughter, Daniel, who just turned 16. And uh, and we got through uh, Thanksgiving and we got through Christmas. Diana died on the 9th of September. By the 27th of December, I couldn't stand it anymore. That pain was too great for me to bear without whiskey. I just could not do it. And after got Christmas all done with his kids and his new granddaughter, uh, I made a plan. I marked off seven days on my desk calendar. And I wrote that sponsor's telephone number in big numbers, and I opened my big book, page 58. And I went out and I bought five cases of Budweiser, two cases of Jack Daniels, an ounce of heroin, and 24 new rigs. And I sat down at my kitchen table to get loaded for seven days. You see, I knew that one drink would not relieve my pain. I knew that one night's drinking would not take care of my problem, but I figured seven would. And my, you know, about a, about a week's drunk, you know, that would knock out quite a bit of pain. And uh, and that was my plan. And at the end of that seven days, I wanted to sober up. And I couldn't. This was the very first time that I couldn't. I could not not drink. I could make a couple hours. Sometimes I could make a couple of days. I could get 72 hours sometimes. Now, uh, my home group is 
this demands. That kind of means I live in California, but I'm not from California. I'm from Colorado. <laughs> the only reason I live in California is because I drank too much whiskey in Colorado. <laughs> and they would rather... They banished me to the land of fruits and nuts. <laughs> you need them 12 steps to live in California. <laughs> But I got I got California running from the laws of truth of the matter. I had some things going on in my head in the state of Colorado. I I create quite a bit of wreckage in seven days. And I got out there and and I got there dry. But I I turned up drunk again. And I ended up uh to make a long story a little shorter, I ended up uh laying in an abandoned garage and I didn't know what to do. And I couldn't remember to call Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've never been to a detox in my life, although I needed to. I did go one time, and they wouldn't let me in. Uh, they sent me to a hospital, and they sent me to a mortuary. Was a, was a, well, they didn't send me. They gave my brother the mortician's card. But I didn't know what to do. But I could remember about this God, because I was raised with a kind and loving God. But he was one I didn't figure I had anything coming from because of the ways that I had lived. You know what I've done to God's children? I got nothing coming from God. But I remembered you drunks talking about God, and I laid in that abandoned garage for three days, and I asked God to please help me through this. Even if I come out of this wet-brained, you know, help me through this, God. And my sponsor says that's pretty much what happened. I did come out of it wet-brained, and that's pretty (laughs) much true. But on the third day, I remembered I had this guy's telephone number from Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was Kip Collins. And I crawled out of that garage, and I managed to get up and get to a telephone, and I called him and told him where I was at. And I weighed 107 pounds at that time. My teeth were all broke out. And I couldn't walk back to that garage. I had to crawl, and I got back in there. And uh, I was still in them convulsions and DTs. And there come a knock on that garage door, and I reached over to push it open. And I couldn't get up to get it open, but when I pushed on it, this guy grabbed a hold of it and raised it up, and it was this big, fat, hippie guy. Had a long, hippie beard and long, hippie hair and a big, hippie belly. Now, I've gotten Kip cleaned up a little bit since then. <laughs> and he looked at me and laughed his butt off. He just cracked up for a long time, and if I could have stood up, I would have whipped him. <laughs> He humiliated me, but I couldn't stand up. But when he got done laughing, he picked me up like a little kid, and he made me a promise. He said, I promise you, you never, ever have to feel like this again. You never, ever have to live like this again if you don't want to. Are you done drinking? It was the very first time in my life. I was 41 years old. very first time in my life I ever really told the truth from here. And I told him, I'm done. And he asked me, are you willing to go to any lengths? And I told him yes. And that was the second time I told the truth. And he sat me down on my feet and said, well, then, good. You're ready to take certain steps. Let's go to a meeting. And that's how it started. And uh, and that's what we're talking about, some magic and the power of these steps. And Kip took me to a meeting. He took me to seven meetings in a row. On the eighth day, I called him. I asked him what meeting we're going to. And he said, I don't know which one you're going to. I said, ain't you picking me up? And he said, no. <laughs> well, well, why not? He said, I showed you where seven meetings in a row are. If you want them, go get them. 
And that's how it was. So I went to the waiting meeting he had taken me to on that same night, you know. And that's what I started doing was going to the meetings that he went to. Or I continued to do that. And we started taking these steps. He gave me some assignments in that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the first one was to read the first 164 pages, and I did that. And then he told me to read line by line, word by word, study that book with a dictionary, until I came to the phrase that says, and this is the first step in recovery. And I'd done that. And that was to concede to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic. And that's when it started for me, because I didn't know nothing about giving up, you know. I didn't know anything about surrender, but I learned that in that big book. And that was a plus for me. I felt a little bit of a relief at that point. And that second step, because of you guys, I came to believe that a power greater than myself would restore me to sanity, because I'd seen it in you. You know, and I read that page 60 to 63 every day. And I learned that third step. See, my spiritual experience had to become of the educational variety because I'd abused that gift that God had given me when I was a young child. I had abused that gift. So I had to learn that spirituality. And I made that decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. And I called Kip and I told him that. And we got down on our knees and we said that prayer that goes something like this. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt, and relieve me of the bondage itself so that I may better serve thee, and help me to overcome my difficulties so that victory over them will bear witness to those that I would help of your power and your glory and your love and your way of life, and I do your will always. And when I got up off of my knees that day, it said just exactly what it says on page 63. I had voiced that honestly and sincerely. And a great effect was felt at once. You see, I was 41 years old, and that was only the second time in my life I had ever felt okay. God had done for me what I could not do for myself. God done for me what whiskey quit doing for me. You see, if whiskey still done that for me, I'd have still been doing it. But it didn't. God done that for me. And from that point on, I continued to take the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as prescribed in the big book. You know, I went on to steps 6 and 7, 8 and 9. That 9 is a long time for me. Uh, I didn't get out from under the law until my 13th birthday, the day of my 13th birthday. It was when I was finally done with all the wreckage of my past legally. And the 10, 11, and 12, you know, are what I live by today. And when I'm wrong, I promptly admit it, you know. And I seek through prayer and meditation to improve conscious contact with God and my understanding. And as having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I try to practice these principles in all of my affairs and carry that to alcoholics that still suffer. And the power and the magic in that is I have never, ever felt like I felt again. I've never lived like I was living. But it's become more than that for me. See, not only do I feel comfortable today, not only could I wake up this morning and not fight my way through depression to get on my knees to pray, but in 1992 they promised me that I would die in four years. Veterans Administration did. I'm getting along pretty good for a one-legged man that's been dead four years. (laughs) But I got that as a result of that second step. I've practiced those principles in all my affairs. 
not only did I come to believe that God would restore me to sanity, but I also came to believe what it says in that big book. When the spiritual malady is overcome, the physical and mental will straighten out. I no longer take psychotropic drugs from the, from the Veterans Administration either to deal with the other things that I have besides alcoholism. And all of that has come from a power greater than myself as a result of taking them 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Had I not done that, none of this would happen. You know, And I am grateful to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, to Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous, to those 12 steps, and to a God of my understanding. I found the God that I'm comfortable with, the one that will do for me what I can't do for myself. Uh, I have a, a way, I've learned a way through that 11th step that I practice my spirituality, and it works for me. If you don't want to feel like you've been feeling, you don't want to live like you've been living, I can make you that same promise that Kip made me. You don't want to. You have a choice. God bless you. How me talk to you, It's not because y'all are pretty, either. <laughs> no, y'all are pretty. I, I want to thank the committee for asking me to come here today and uh, be part of this wonderful thing that we have here at, uh, at, at the rock at the rock okay um, my name is Steve grateful recovering alcoholic and and they put down that I'm from Charleston but actually I'm from Atlanta I grew up in Atlanta uh, I'm uh, a triangle baby and I'm an 8111 baby and about 10 years ago I moved to uh, to Charleston, and then I moved to Myrtle Beach, so I'm actually today uh, a Myrtle Beach King Baby. Do any of y'all know what a King Baby is? I want what I want when I want it, and I'm going to beat on my high chair till I get it. Well, um, grew up in Atlanta. I had a great family. I had a, a younger brother uh, and sister. My family... Uh, my my family was a uh, loving, caring family. Uh, we went to church some. I was introduced to uh, to church, um, and then I got drunk. <laughs> I got drunk when I was 16 years old um, for the first time, and uh, it was shortly after my buddy and I decided that God was a crutch for people who couldn't handle reality. And, uh, his name was Mike, and um, what had happened before that is I, I, I hear other people share this, uh, and I always identify because I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. I didn't feel like I was part of anything uh, until I picked up a guitar uh, at about age 12, got involved in a rock and roll band for my own rock and roll band, and then started drinking. And then I started feeling like I was somebody. And, uh, man, that was a... I always wanted to put something between me and you. I always had to have something that said, this is who I am, instead of saying, hey, you know, let's get to know each other. Um, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, if you had asked me, who, who are you? What are, what are, who are you? I would say, well, I'm the guy that owns EJ's in Buckhead. Uh, that, that was a restaurant in Buckhead. It was a jazz club. And, uh, and I didn't own it. My dad and I 
had that restaurant together, and uh, I had a 40% interest in that restaurant, which was uh, a note to him. And uh, so I didn't actually own Jack. You know? <laughs> All I did was drink his liquor and eat his food and terrorize his employees. <laughs> and that's the, that's the truth of the matter. I did book all the jazz groups that played there, and I, that was fun. So, um, early in my uh, my drinking career, um, I, could, I, I don't really have to tell a lot of it because Kevin Kevin told my story the first uh, ten years of my drinking career last night. Uh, I thought that that uh, uh, that that automobiles. I mean, you know, I had to have a fast car. Uh, I had to drink uh, in order to be able to socialize, and I, I wanted to get married from the time I was 16 until I did. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. It was crazy. I was crazy. Uh, alcohol made me, gave me permission to do and say things that I could never do and say as a, as a sober person, as a, as a not sober person, as just a, a young man. Because when I was 16, I arrested my growth for 21 years, and I had a long and fruitless adolescence. Um, <laughs> uh, I went to the University of Georgia, ooga, 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 one quarter. Uh, <laughs> ooga. I oogered myself right out of the University of Georgia. I, uh, I was playing in this rock and roll band called The Jokers that I had started, and uh, uh, we uh, I, we would play every Friday night at some fraternity party somewhere in the southeast. And uh, so I cut classes on Friday, and then, like Kevin was talking about, uh, I always cut classes on Monday because I had to recover from the weekend, and then. Uh, you know, as the week wore on, I had to go on Wednesday to Old South uh, Bar up in Athens on the street up there and uh, chug beers with the guys. And, and so by the time the week was over, I'd probably been to two classes and uh, went, went home uh, on academic probation at Christmas time. My dad says, uh, you can sleep in the house, but and I'll feed you breakfast and I'll feed you dinner, but in between... I don't care what you do, you know, you can't, you can't be here. Uh, so I said, I'll show you, and I went and I joined the U.S. Navy. Uh, <laughs> and they sent me uh, to Great Lakes Naval Training Center in February of, uh, <laughs> with my London fog jacket and my Weegians and my, uh, you know, my little dockers or whatever, and um I realized within about a half an hour of being up there that I had made a grave, serious error. (laughs) Man, that was a... Anyway, I made it. I don't know how the heck I made it out of boot camp, but I did, and they sent me to Millington to to school in electronics, and they sent me to Jacksonville, and uh, I became a crew member on a patrol aircraft called a P-2V. And uh, they don't fly those anymore. They're <laughs> As a matter of fact, we transitioned out of those while I was still in the Navy. But um, uh, I am told that we went to some pretty exotic places over in the Mediterranean. 
I don't remember a lot of it. I remember falling out of the after-station hatch in Athens, Greece, and uh, getting drunk and waking up the next morning in this little... Uh, Honey that I had picked up in the bar had uh, relieved me of my wallet, and uh, and I don't remember what happened, how that all happened. I mean, that's that's the way I drank. You know, I started out drinking on the weekends, uh, and then I added uh, added a day here and there, and finally I was drinking every day, and then I added an hour earlier here and there, and <laughs> I mean, it just got to the point where I was just drinking, and. Uh, by the time I came to AA, I was in the restaurant business, and that uh, I, I was talking with a friend this morning that says he said he's an attorney, and that, 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 that out, out, drinking alcohol is an occupational hazard. And I said, well, so is being in the restaurant business, and so is being a plumber, and so is being <laughs> you know it doesn't matter what you are, uh, it cuts across all the lines. Alcoholism does. And, uh, I had it. Uh, let's see, I was. Uh, when I got out of the Navy, uh, I was playing in another band, and, and we were playing in Daytona Beach, Florida. By the way, I got fired from my the, the Jokers. I mean, I got fired because I wanted to play jazz, and they were playing rock and roll, So, and it didn't quite fit together. You know, you rock purists out there got to know that jazz chords behind rock and roll music just don't quite work. That was part of my, my alcoholic thinking. You know, I wanted to do it my way. So they fired me just before I went in the Navy. And I got out and got in another band, and um, I was playing in Daytona Beach, Florida, and I looked down there in front of me, and here's this smiley little sweet thing shaking them things around. Ooh, yes. And um, I pursued I fell in lust immediately. And, and uh, the two of us had a hot, steamy... Uh, uh, courting relationship and finally got married in um, 1968. Her name was Carolyn, and um, she didn't like my drinking after a while. She uh, she was down there just to party for a weekend, and, and she didn't realize that that wasn't the way I drank. Not just once in a while. I drank all the time. And so she figured that she was going to fix me, and, you know, and... Uh, uh, there came a time I, after I got out of the Navy, I went back to uh, Georgia State College and I actually did well there. Um, I, I um, was introduced to uh, marijuana in 1968. A musician friend of mine turned me on to marijuana and, uh, and I put booze down for six months. But I smoked dope from the time I got out of bed until the time I went to bed. And um, after six months, uh, this wife of mine, Carolyn, discovered that I'd been doing that because she didn't know. And uh, she she was not happy. She was, in fact, she was very, very she, she was one of those that could bounce that 27-inch television around, too. Um, so I uh, uh, I was offered... The option of um, getting a job. She said, you know, you're hanging out with these musician guys. You're drinking. You're staying out late and doing all that kind of stuff. And and she told me, uh, you need to you need to get a job. Now that's one of the worst sentences that I've ever heard in my life. You need to get a job. 
That's a that's a four letter word in three letters. J O B. You know. So anyway, I uh, being a being a student of the easier, softer way, I talked to my dad, who was in the restaurant business in Atlanta. Uh, he had a big restaurant downtown called Herons that some of you may remember. Most of you guys are too young to remember that. But, um, I grew up in that restaurant, and so I went and asked him for a job, and he took me on at downtown on Lucky Street in Atlanta. And um, I started, um, he, he gave me a two-quart-a-week allotment out of the liquor store there. And the liquor store was a closet that we stored all our liquor in, and, uh, and I had the keys to it, and uh, that was dangerous. That was truly dangerous. And... and uh, we started out, I was working during the day, and I worked it around to where I was working at night. So when I got off, I could continue my drinking and show up uh, in the morning, you know, somewhere at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and sneak in and, and hope that Carolyn didn't uh, didn't get too uh, upset about me coming home at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. It was a bad scene. I was running around on her and... Uh, it's the, some of the stuff that alcohol gave me the permission to do. So I met my second wife was a hostess at the restaurant. <laughs> she was a she was a true angel um, named Trisha, and she she was the love of my life. Um, she she loved my music, she loved my drinking, she loved my drugging, and uh, she loved me. Uh, and so. With a daughter that was six months old, my wife and I got in an argument one evening, and uh, she she said, you've got to either straighten out or, or be gone, and I said, bye, and I was gone. Uh, that's a sad, sad thing, man. Uh, you know, I've learned in my recovery that, that really what our recovery is about is the relationships we have with other people and how we treat other people and the value system that we have in our life. Um, you know, and that's probably one of the darkest moments of my life was walking out of that house with a six-month-old child. Um, and I'm sure that there's probably one or two of you in this room that may have that experience also. Uh, I can tell you that it's the only uh, it's the only amend that still uh, hangs over me is my daughter who has not spoken to me in nine years now. She's 29 years old. And um, God bless her. I hope uh, I hope someday I'm able to find a way to get her to understand what it was that happened here. Anyway, move on here. Um, restaurant business, jazz club, nighttime. I lived like a bat. Uh, Trisha and I had uh, plywood nailed across our windows in our bedroom, so you know we lived like bats. So we'd get home in, late at night, and uh, or when the sun came up, I drove home many times uh, in the morning rush hour traffic in Atlanta. Uh, God bless all those people out there. That, there's probably, I mean, you know, every time I go out in the rush hour traffic in the morning, I wonder if this guy next to me is like me back then. <laughs> um, but I was a creature of the night, and I was enjoying that lifestyle. And uh, uh, this place was called EJ's. It was in Buckhead, and it was before Buckhead was popular like Buckhead is today. And uh, 
after about three or four years, uh, I actually I actually married Trisha after two years, and then and then uh, a couple of years later, she came to me one evening before we went to work, and she said, "What's this little knot right here on my?" She had a little knot on her collarbone about the size of a of your thumb, and uh, I don't know. She, she went to the doctor, and a week later, or, or the actually uh, the next day, they. They took that out, and, and a week later they told us she had cancer. And it wasn't just uh, any kind of cancer. It was uh, bad cancer that metastasized and that kind of thing. And she was only, at the time, 26 years old. Um, man, tough thing, tough thing. I remember her in my arms uh, crying, you know, I, I, I just want to live. I don't, I don't want to die, you know. And here both of us were. Uh, dying one drink at a time, um, particularly me. I'd gotten by that time. I'd gotten where I drank almost around the clock. I I, I would get up at three o'clock in the afternoon, and by seven thirty or eight o'clock, I'd take my first drink. And and you know, I would tell people I don't drink until seven thirty in the evening, but I'd only been out of bed four hours. So I mean, uh, you know, and I have no doubt that uh, if I had continued drinking, that I would have. I would have been a round-the-clock drinker. That's one of my yets. Um, so anyway, I came. To, uh, I had a customer that was a, a nasty drunk. He was fueling, whining kind of guy that would come in the bar and cry about his wife, and, and uh, his wife was having an affair with another bar owner down the street or something, and. And it got to the point where he would pull up, and we'd be sitting in there after hours. He would pull up to the uh, to the restaurant, and we could see out in the parking lot. And as soon as he pulled up, we'd turn off the lights and go hide, so we wouldn't have to hang out with this guy. His name was Willie. Well, Willie disappeared for thirty days, and uh, or something like that, a month or so. And he showed back up, and he was all dressed up nice, looked nice. And I asked him, how'd, how'd you get sober? And he said, well, I went to AA. And over the next couple of nights, um, we talked about where I was and what AA was. And, um, I had gotten to the point where I thought about suicide every day of my life. Even though I had a business, two new cars, a nice home, I wore nice clothes, um, I was thinking about suicide every day. I mean, it was like a daily meditation. And um, Anyway, he came in the bar. I had been experimenting, by the way, on trying to quit drinking. And, and you know, when people ask me, when, when the people in my life would ask me about drinking, I would tell them, to, you know, they'd say, you need to do something about your drinking. I'd say, get out of my face. It, uh, if I've got a problem with drinking, it's my problem, not your problem. And this is the operative statement here. I can quit any time I want to. You know. Well, I got to where I wanted to quit, and I couldn't. So, anyway, I'm. Um, he came in the uh, restaurant on a Friday night, November the sixth of 1981, and I said, you know, I want to check out one of those meetings sometime. Thinking he would say next week or whatever, and he said, how about right now? <laughs> And that's my sobriety day. By the grace of God in this fellowship, I've only I've only had uh, one white chip. 
and uh, this fellowship is where it's at. Uh, I, uh, my early sobriety, uh, the first thing that happened, three weeks after I got sober, my dad came to me and said, I'm going to sell this restaurant, and you need to find a job. You know, here we are, 20 years later, the same statement. You need to find a job. And uh, so I went out and promoted some jazz concerts. I thought that was what God wanted me to do. I'm sober now. I, I'm going to go promote some concerts. And I borrowed some money from an Italian-American friend of mine <laughs> in the bar business. And I went and I promoted uh, four concerts, and I lost uh, lost everything I had. And he called me up and he says, I want my fucking money. Ooh. And I got it. And, you know, what do you do when, <laughs> when your Italian-American friend tells you, you pay him. That's what you do. I found it. Anyway. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, it's, it's scary. And here I am sober uh, with this kind of stuff going on. And um, shortly after I got sober, my wife had a recurrence of her cancer, and we had to go down to the uh, down to Gainesville, Florida. And she um, she was offered a four quarter amputation. I, I like the way the medical community puts that. We offered her a four quarter amputation, which would be make a bottleneck out of her on her right side, you know, take off her right arm and all that kind of stuff. And with the operation, she had a 50%, no, an 80% chance of recurrence. No, something like maybe 50 and without it, 80%. Anyway, she chose not to do that, and that was a, a good decision. One of the things that, that we talked about a lot, Trish and I talked about, was, you know, if all I had to do was go to a meeting every day, and hang out with my friends in the program, uh, and, you know, it'd be great. I mean, if they told me to go stand on my head at five points in the middle of uh, rush hour traffic and spit nickels, I'd say, where can I get the nickels, you know, to, to recover from her disease? And all we have to do is hang out with each other, uh, make friends with each other, don't drink, go to meetings. I mean, that's, that's pretty simple. So, uh, anyway, she got sick uh, again in uh, January of, or December of uh, 83, and, and this time it was a serious uh, metastasis of the disease, and it was pretty obvious that she wasn't going to make it. And uh, I, was, uh, I was involved in this group at The Rock, I was involved with, uh, my home group was the men's group that met on Thursday night at 8111. They meet Wednesday nights now, I think, but, uh, it was, uh, Bill Lepley and Bill Sanders, uh, Ron Missouri. Uh, I mean, there was a bunch of great guys in that group. And, and they all came up here to the rock. So, uh, I had been coming a couple of times and, uh, uh, what, a, what an experience this is. You, you guys that are here the first time, keep coming. I mean, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. I came to 10 of them in a row uh, back then in the early 80s. And um, I knew Bill Hollingsworth. I knew Doc. Actually, I sat out on the bench out there with Bill Hollingsworth and did my fifth step uh, at the uh, uh, October of 83 
rock. And back then we didn't call it the rock. It was just a, it was just the men's workshop. Uh, he was a great man, Bill Hollingsworth. Anyway, uh, my recovery, how much time have I got? You know, I got this half hour thing here. I, I should have had Kevin's time last, you know. To, uh, there's something strange about that. Kevin got uh, 45 minutes to tell his 10 year story. I mean, there's a little backwards there or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm an old guy here. Um, how much time do how much six minutes. Okay, six minutes. <laughs> okay, um, five, four, three, two. Here we go. Um, you know, when I went to the University of Georgia, uh, I rushed uh, rushed the fraternities there, and and I wanted to be a Kappa Alpha because they drank big time, and and. I rushed all of them, and uh, and they, none of them would have me. I, none of them bid for me. I figured it was because God was saving me for Alpha Alpha, AA. <laughs> anyway, I'm. Uh, I've had a lot of lot of a uh, lot of time in recovery. I've I've worked the steps. Uh, you know, the powerless business, and the first one I know now, I'm powerless over. Um, Alcohol, it is a power greater than myself. I don't understand how anybody that comes in these rooms can have a problem understanding that there are powers greater than ourselves. I mean, I got two tickets inside of about uh, 30 minutes last year, and uh, South Carolina State Patrol is a power greater than myself. So, uh, I believe personally that the power is... Is like uh, a Star Wars power. It is. It is the power. And there's a dark side, and there's the side that's love and light. And uh, I lived on the dark side for about 21 years. This year, I'll celebrate 21 years of living on the other side. And um, it's been a wonderful 21 years. I lost Trish uh, to cancer in May of '84. Uh, if this, if I hadn't been part of this fellowship, I would have followed her right in the grave. Um, but I didn't, and it was one day at a time. It was coming to these meetings, uh, being part of this fellowship, having a sponsor, using a sponsor, uh, lots of meetings. Uh, between then and um, a few years ago, I had 13 years of being single in AA. And I had five significant relationships in that period of time. I had eight jobs, jobs, real jobs, by the way. And um, and each successive relationship got better. And I'm convinced it's because I'm, I took an honest self-appraisal of myself. I admitted to God, myself, and other human beings the exact nature of my wrongs. And then I became willing to be somebody different than who came here. Um, in six and seven, which I think are the, that's the real pivot point in this program. It says, I'm willing to be, uh, I'm willing to live by the principles that we talk about in step 12, practice these principles in all our affairs. Uh, then I made my amends. I remember being in the attic of my dad's house, uh, helping him put in some insulation in the summertime. 
Man, it was hot. And we were sweating, and uh, and I was talking to him. I was saying, you know, I don't know how I'm ever going to repay you um, for for what you've done for me over my lifetime and, and the stuff that I did while I was an alcoholic. And he said, and he looked at me, and I think it was tears in his eyes. It might have been sweat. I mean, we were up there in the attic. But uh, he looked at me and said, son, the fact that you're sober today is enough. You know? And I believe that the amends are living a living process. Uh, it's not something that you just walk up to somebody and say, I'm sorry I screwed over you and took your money and whatever you did with the person. Uh, you, that's, that doesn't cut it. Uh, that was something I could do as a drunk and did many times. Uh, what cuts it is one day at a time, one day at a time living sober with your friends and your family and those people that you have relationships with. Um, the uh, the steps, you know, I've gotten at this point where I've incorporated them into my life. At, at 10 years sober, I was virtually bankrupt. I was in Florida. Uh, I had lost a job down there, and uh, I'd run my credit cards up, and American Express had said, don't leave home with it. <laughs> you know, and... And I moved out of Florida in the dead of night like a drunk at 10 years sober and, and moved back to Atlanta. And um, I got a sponsor named Tim who sat down and did the fourth and fifth step uh, over my finances. And, and then I made amends. And today I get, uh, all, I get solicited for credit all the time. I mean, I've, my credit's back. I got married five years ago to a beautiful lady from Charleston. Um, uh, that's a that's an, another opportunity for spiritual growth, by the way. Um, relationships, man, that's where it's at. Y'all remember that? That's where it, that's where the rubber meets the road in this program, is being able to be loving and kind and tolerant to other people. Uh, I'm uh, I'm down to one minute, I think. One minute. Uh, let's see, 49, 48. <laughs> no, uh, I'm, a, I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. Uh, I've got a lot of time, a lot of, I've got 7,600 one day at a time. And I've had a lot of bad things go on in my life one day at a time. And I've had a lot of good things go on in my life one day at a time. This is one of the greatest things here is, is the privilege of talking with you guys. And I just hope that what I've shared with you helped at least one of you in this room, maybe two or three. Um, I love this program. It's part of my life. Make it part of yours and you'll be all right. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.